0: Luke chapter eleven, and this morning we will be reading verses fourteen through twenty-six. Please give your attention to God's word. Now he, Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marvelled. But some of them said, "He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons." While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he is trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Over the past couple of weeks, I've enjoyed seeing the high definition pictures that have been sent back to us from the surface of Mars from the Perseverance rover. Not much to look at there, and we don't expect to be vacationing there anytime soon, but it is really awesome to see the surface of Mars, something that prior generations couldn't have dreamed of, to actually see pictures taken from the surface of Mars. It's reminded me of other images that we've seen in the last couple of decades that our forefathers couldn't have imagined seeing. Things like the far reaches of our galaxy that have come back to us from the Hubble telescope. Or the pictures of the strange creatures that live at the bottoms of our oceans. Or the pictures of the unseen world of microbiology that scientists are able to see using the most advanced electron microscopes. We can now see things that existed 100 years ago, but 100 years ago people didn't know anything about. They couldn't see it. And I'm sure there are things that exist today that 100 years from now, with the advances in technology, we'll be able to see that we can't see today. I just remind you of this, just to underline the very strong biblical point, that there are things that exist, things that are real, that we can't see with our eyes, that we can't sense with our five senses. We just concluded a study of the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation. And when we looked at that petition from the Lord's Prayer in the context of all Scripture, what we saw is that the Lord is teaching us to pray for protection from spiritual beings that are out to entice us into sin. They're out to actually destroy us by leading us away from the Lord and towards sin. And so we are to pray for protection from these evil beings that are trying to lead us astray. I want you to just take a moment and realize how unpopular that belief is. We're used to talking this way in the context of the church, but You go out and talk like that in the middle of the campus or downtown State College, you're going to get a very strong reaction. Those beliefs, the beliefs that there is a powerful being, a spiritual being, an unseen spiritual being named Satan who rules over a dark kingdom that influences how things in this fallen world works and that he oversees a massive number of underlings of other spiritual beings who interact with our lives to deceive us, to lead us astray. In 21st century America, that, those kind of beliefs are considered primitive, superstitious, unscientific, backward. But, if the Bible is revelation from God, if the Bible is given to us as God's Word, to tell us what reality is and how we should live in that reality. If the Bible is without error, then we cannot dismiss that view of unseen reality as something that's primitive or unscientific. It's real, we just can't see it with our eyes. We just can't perceive it with our senses. That's the background of the passage we're looking at this morning because there's a conflict. This passage is about a conflict between Jesus and his enemies. But the conflict is initiated over something that Jesus does, which the Bible calls casting out demons. We've seen it throughout the book of Luke. That was part of Jesus' ministry, of coming to heal, to restore, and point to the good news of the kingdom of God, was he cast out demons as, sign of his, as a sign of his power and authority. Now again, modern... Minds would say, ah, demon possession, that's just a, a primitive, wrong, misunderstanding of what were actually just physical or psychological ailments, disabilities. But if that's what you believe that demon possession really was, then you cannot take the Bible seriously. You cannot take the authority of Scripture Seriously, if that's how you view what demon possession was, because that's not the the biblical worldview. That's not how the Bible teaches about the activity of demons and what demon possession was. Here it says that uh, that, uh, some of those objected to what Jesus was doing, but actually in the gospel accounts of Mark and Matthew, it spells out that these were scribes and Pharisees. So the usual suspects were opposing Jesus. It says that their sons, the sons of the scribes and Pharisees, that would be the disciples of the scribes and Pharisees, the Jewish leadership of the day, that some of them were also casting out demons. And so what we see here is that Jesus and his enemies agreed upon that biblical worldview, that there is a spiritual realm, that there is a Satan, that there are demons, and that these are real beings that interact with us whether we see them or aware of them or not. I am not really sure how much demon possession actually happens these days. I hear about stories on the mission field that make me wonder. I don't know. But I do know that based on the account of Scripture, even comparing portions of Scripture to other portions of Scripture, there seems to have been a spike in demonic activity during the ministry of Jesus Christ. That during that time, because God had sent his Messiah, because God had sent his son to defeat the work of Satan and his kingdom, that there was a spike in demonic activity, and that's why demon possession and casting out of demons is such a prominent feature in the ministry of Christ and his apostles. And so this is the war that still goes on. Paul is talking about his day, but he's also talking about our day when he writes in Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Too much of the church's focus and its battles has been upon earthly persons and earthly institutions and earthly governments But the scriptural view is that our real battle, our ultimate war, is against spiritual beings and a spiritual kingdom of darkness. Let's look at what is the accusation? What are they accusing Jesus of here anyway? In verse 15, it says, here's what they were saying. Jesus casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That's an amazing accusation. Beelzebul is a name that actually is a Corruption of a name from the Old Testament era. Going all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 1, there King Ahaziah consults with a god of the the Philistines, a Canaanite Baal god named Baal Zebub. That's the name that's given in 1 Kings. That name, Baal Zebub, the spelling changes over time. We're talking centuries of the Old Testament. The spelling changes, obviously. The second part of the name Beelzebub, again, this is a Canaanite god. It's one of the Baal gods that the Old Testament is is full of. All the nations around Israel uh, were worshiping Baal gods. Well, Beelzebub, actually that name Zebub at the end sounds like the word Zebul, which sounds like a Hebrew word that means dung. Whereas originally the name Beelzebub meant Lord of the Dwelling in Canaanite language, or possibly Lord of the Flies. Scholars haven't been able to decide which. One of those two, either Lord of, the dwelling, Lord of the Dwelling or Lord of the Flies. But the Jews, what appears to have happened by the time of Jesus and the apostles is that they changed that last from Beelzebub ba- to Zebul, because zebul sounds like the Hebrew word for dung. And so instead of Lord of the Dwelling or Lord of the Flies, it's Lord of the Dung, or as we would say, the Lord of Poop. That's literally what the name meant to the Jews, and it became an effective name to make fun of your enemy, calling Satan that derogatory name. And so that's why they use that name here. It says he calls Beelzebul the Prince of Demons, and that fits with what... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 says that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. In other words, when there is false worship, when pagans are involved in false worship, they are not praying to, a phys- to an idol. They're not praying to a real false god. They're praying to demonic activity. And so that's what Paul is saying. So it makes sense that, Paul, that, 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 that Jesus would call Beelzebub the prince of demons. It became a name for Satan, as the one who's the leader of demons. He is the prince of the power of the air, according to Ephesians 2, as Paul refers to him. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. You see, what's happening here is that the scribes and Pharisees could not deny the miracles that Jesus performed. People were healed, the dead were raised. He, they could not deny it. People were released from possession by demons. They could not deny what he was doing. So what they did is they reinterpreted it. What was actually happening? Yes, he released people from demons, but by what authority and what power was he doing it? And they accused him of doing it by Satan's power and authority, that he was serving Satan. It's actually one of the worst accusations you could possibly make against Jesus Christ. That he was a false prophet that he was doing supernatural acts in service and doing signs in service of Satan and his kingdom. And his purpose was to deceive people and to lead them away from God. That's what the scribes and Pharisees are accusing Jesus of doing in this situation. In Matthew's account of the same incident, it quotes Jesus' saying to these scribes and Pharisees that they were committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. An unpardonable sin. You see, this is classic confirmation bias. Confirmation bias, a big issue these days, it's where you come to a conclusion, and then you go out and look at all the evidence in light of your conclusion, looking for evidence to prove your cl- conclusion to be correct. And it actually, if you're not careful, it can color or corrupt your actual interpretation of the evidence. And that's what's happening here. They had already decided that Jesus was evil. They had already decided that Jesus was leading people astray. So they're looking for evidence, but the evidence they see is Jesus healing the sick, raising the dead, and casting out demons. Somehow they have to reinterpret that as doing the work of the devil. It's like an unbeliever going out and looking at the beauty and complexity and immensity and the order of creation. And because of their confirmation bias, attributing it all to chance. That's confirmation bias corrupting the interpretation of what is plainly obvious to the physical senses. In verse 16, it says that there were also others that weren't actually accusing him of serving Satan, but kept demanding more signs, saying, Jesus, casting out demons isn't enough, healing the sick isn't enough, even raising the dead isn't enough, do some greater sign, then we'll believe in you. Even as Jesus hung on the cross, There were people at the foot of his cross saying, let him come down now and then we'll believe in him. You see, skeptics never will believe. They're looking for evidence to disprove him, not evidence to believe. Jesus did signs to confirm the faith of those who are seeking him by faith, but he never performed signs to convince the skeptical, to convince the unbeliever. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, neither will they be convinced even if someone should rise from the dead. Our faith is not based on signs, ultimately. Signs are given to strengthen faith or to confirm faith, but faith is a gift from God. Faith is believing in the Word of God, not being skeptical to the Word of God. So that's the accusation, that he's serving Satan. This shows the hardness of the scribes and the Pharisees' heart, that this blindness is becoming more pervasive in their life to the point where they're going to crucify him eventually. How does Jesus defend himself? Like a good preacher, Jesus makes three points. First of all, he says the accusation makes no sense. That's really what he's saying when he says in verses 17 and 18, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Now, Jesus is granting the fact that, sure, Satan would have the power and authority. He is the prince of demons. He's the ruler of this dark kingdom. He could actually command one of his demons to let go of a poor sinner who's being possessed, who's being controlled by that demon. He could say, yeah, you need to depart from him. Come out of him. Satan would have the power and authority to do that, but why would he do it? Dale, the commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, says Satan is evil, but he's not a moron. That would be the stupidest thing for Satan to do because of his whole purpose in existing. His whole purpose in being active in the world is to enslave people, to control people, to draw people away from God. And here you have, talking about people that have become captive to Satan, they're totally possessed, they're controlled by Satan, by by his demons... And the idea that he would let them go is t- exactly 180 degrees contrary to everything Satan's trying to accomplish. And that's why Jesus says, why would his, he divide his kingdom like that? Why would he act in cross purposes against what he's trying to accomplish in his kingdom? Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's describing what the mission of the church is. What's our mission? Based on the work of Christ, what are we out to do? He says in verses 25 and 26 of 2 Timothy 2, he says, we are to share the truth of the loss that, quote, they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Our purpose is to preach Christ, preach the gospel, so people will believe in Christ so that he can deliver them from captivity to Satan, from being under the control of Satan. So for Satan to cast out demons would be exactly opposite to what he's trying to accomplish. That's Jesus' point. Your accusation makes no sense. Secondly, his second point is that the accusation is actually inconsistent. In verse 19 he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? We know that there were some Jewish exorcists. There were some Jewish teachers, rabbis, priests, whatever, that actually went around casting out demons in that first century, in the time of Jesus. We know that because in Acts 19, after Jesus' resurrection, during the time of the early church, there were Jewish exorcists who were going around using the name of Jesus like some kind of incantation. They, they, that was what they did. They cast out demons, but they tried to get more power by using the name of Jesus because they saw the disciples doing it, seeing what they were able to do in casting out demons. And so they tried to use his name like an incantation. It didn't work so well. The seven sons of Sceva got beat up by a demon-possessed man because the demon says, hey, I know Paul, I know Jesus, but who are you? So they were inappropriately using the name of Jesus. But there were Jewish exorcists, that's the point. There were Jews that were casting out demons, at least claiming to cast out demons. And so Jesus says, well, how do you deal with their claims? They're your disciples. By whose power and authority are they casting out demons? So if you accuse me of doing it by Satan's power, you have to accuse them as well. So your accusation is inconsistent. But then he comes to his closing argument. And that's in verse 20 where he says that his power and his authority are obviously then a display of the power of the finger of God. He says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what somebody with their eyes open by faith will see, is that his miracles, healings, raising the dead, casting out demons, were signs that the kingdom of God had come to earth, that he had come to establish it, as its king. In the Lord's Prayer, we are taught by our Lord to pray, Your kingdom come. That doesn't mean that the kingdom's not already here. What it means is that Christ has already established the kingdom, this unseen kingdom. He's already established it, and that as we pray, Your kingdom come, we're praying that it will become visible as more loyal subjects by faith come and commit their, their lives to serving and obeying and fulfilling the mission of the church through the blood of Christ. That's what we're praying for. The kingdom is here. John the Baptist, when he came to announce that the Messiah was about to come, when he came to prepare the way for Jesus, John the Baptist said the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, when he began his ministry, said the kingdom of God is near to you. And then he said in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God can't be seen, but it's real, and it's here, and it's more powerful than the kingdom of Satan. That's what the casting out of demons by our Lord Jesus Christ meant. Jesus describes the effect of his coming in verses 21 and 22. Let me read those for you again. Verse 21, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. That's what Jesus came to do, to overcome the strong man, to defeat the strong man, to take away his defenses, and to divide his spoil, to take his captives and set them free. That's why Jesus came. That's why he said when he saw his disciples going out and preaching the good news of the kingdom having arrived, that's why Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Because of what was happening as the kingdom became established on earth. In John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul says that he, Christ, has delivered, actually speaking the Father, God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has taken away Satan's armor and divided the spoil. He has set the captives free. The strong man is defeated in this coming of Christ. In Matthew's account of this incident, Jesus uses the language of binding the strong man. That's what has occurred. Satan is bound. In the obedience of Christ, he bound Satan because when Satan attacked Jesus, sought to lead him astray by temptation, in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting, Jesus refuted him with the word of God and resisted his temptations. Jesus' obedience was a defeat for Satan. Much more than that, Jesus' death on the cross was a defeat for Satan because Satan is called the accuser. That's what his name means, to accuse. But Jesus took our sin upon himself on the cross. He became our sin on the cross and God poured out his judgment and wrath upon his own son on the cross instead of pouring it out upon us so that we have no more guilt, no more shame, we are forgiven, we are clean in the eyes of God because Christ defeated Satan by taking all the basis for his accusation against us away from us by dying in our place on the cross. He defeated Satan there. And Jesus defeated Satan and his worst, worst weapon, the worst thing that Satan could bring to bear against us is death itself, but Jesus walked out of that tomb and defeated death. So Satan is defeated and he is bound that means that he's still active he's still around but he's on a chain he can go this far but no further and how far can he go he can tempt he can seek to seduce he can seek to he certainly can be very active among unbelieving families, unbelieving individuals, unbelieving institutions, unbelieving governments. Yes, he's very active, but he's bound in one particular sense and that's described in Revelation 20 where it says that the angel seized the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. In other words, the gospel is going to all nations. Because Christ has bound Satan, defeated him, his final defeat is still to come, He's still active, but he's a defeated enemy. And because he's a defeated enemy, he can no longer deceive the nations. The gospel has gone to every tribe, every nation, every tongue. The church is universal. The church is worldwide because Christ has put a limit on Satan's power to deceive. The kingdom of God is here, and it's made visible as the church preaches the gospel. And people believe the gospel by the gift of faith given by the Holy Spirit. And people become submissive to the one true king, become part of his kingdom, serve his purposes, do his will, and preach his gospel. That's how the kingdom becomes obvious in this world. As Paul described his own ministry in Acts 26, verse 18, so that sinners may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's the reality of the spiritual warfare that's going on right now as we speak. So Jesus concludes this passage with two warnings. The king is here. The kingdom is established. It's expanding in its influence to all parts of the creation. What's that mean for you as an individual? First of all, Jesus warns there's no neutrality in this kingdom. There's no neutrality. You're either in Christ's kingdom or you're outside of it. As Jesus put it in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's no middle ground. There's no fence riding when it comes to Jesus Christ. You're either with the scribes and the Pharisees, and you have to ultimately say that his power to cast out demons and to heal, that these are all signs that are done in the name of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Or you say with Nicodemus who said to Jesus in John 3, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher for come from God for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Either his signs pointed to him as the king of this great spiritual kingdom that will become the, the universal new heavens and new earth one day or you reject him and make him your enemy. There is no gray area. There's no neutral ground as God looks at us. See, that's the myth of neutrality that exists in our day because very few people would say that they're enemies of Jesus Christ. Very few people would, say, would, would even say that publicly they don't like Jesus Christ. Some would, but not many. But they don't recognize the spiritual reality of where they stand. They don't understand who he is. That's why we must preach that he is the king We must preach that he is the only redeemer, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. We need to tell people that so that they can make an informed choice and say, yes, I will follow that king. Yes, I will do his will. Yes, I will receive his salvation. Or they will continue outside of his kingdom and ultimately be among his enemies. Whoever doesn't gather with me scatters, he said because that's what's going on today. We are gathering God's people. We're preaching the gospel. We're telling them about this risen Christ in hopes that they will believe. We are gathering, but if you're not gathering, if you're not part of the mission of the church to gather God's people, then you're scattering. You're leading people astray. Everybody you influence in your life, if you're not pointing them to Christ, you're leading them away from the one true king and you're scattering them from God. There is no neutrality. The second warning that Jesus gives is in verses 24 to 26 where he tells this story about a demon, an odd little story about a demon. A demon gets cast out of a person, wanders out in the wilderness aimlessly, and then says, well maybe I'll go back and check the guy that I got cast out of and see how he's doing. He comes back and finds the guy cleaned and in order, his life is straightened out, he's living a good life, but he's empty, spiritually he's empty. And that demon says, hey, I'm going going to go back in, take up residence again. Matter of fact, I'm going to invite seven of my demon friends and we're going to hang out there together. You see, Jesus is trying to say, there is only one way to escape Satan and his destructive purposes. Satan desires to control. Satan desires to possess. Satan desires to lead you into darkness and ultimate destruction. That's his purpose. And there's only one way to be safe, and that's to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You need, even if you were to purge yourself of demons and all the demons' influence, if you do not have the Holy Spirit to take the demons' place, then you are in a worse place than you were at first, is what Jesus is saying. Let me give you just a simple example. I'm not talking about demon possession here. I'm just talking about just reality of how sin works. Let's say you're somebody who's obese, due to the sin of gluttony. Not all obesity is due to gluttony, but much of it is. Let's say you're a person who's obese due to the sin of gluttony. You could, through maybe meditation and diligent workouts and self-control and self-help books, you could actually lose a lot of weight, discipline yourself, get your life under control, and actually become thin and attractive but then having become thin and attractive, if you're still spiritually empty, if you've done this all this in the flesh and all the, the ways of the world, if you're still empty, then you could actually very easily become susceptible to the sin of pride. And pride is a far more devilish, far darker, far more destructive sin than gluttony. That's just one way, simple way to illustrate that if you're not Filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not in you and with you. The Spirit of Christ to enable you. You could be the most religious, most self-disciplined, most admirable person in the eyes of the world, but you're lost and you're in danger of far greater sins and a far greater demonic activity in your life. The only way to be safe is to turn to Christ to receive His Spirit. And if you have His Spirit, you are secure Bible, the New Testament calls the Holy Spirit the seal of, the, of God. In other words, it protects you. You need never fear that you come under the control of Satan. You belong to God and he will not let you go. Those who he holds in his hands, he will not let slip from his fingers. So let me just end with a question I started with. What is real that you can't see with your eyes? What is real? Who are you going to believe? Going to believe the world? going to believe your own thoughts your own perceptions or are you going to believe the word of god how you answer that question will determine your destiny let's pray father thank you for opening our spiritual eyes thank you for revealing to us what is true beyond what our senses can perceive father i pray that our eyesight by faith would only grow stronger Thank you for the promise of the protecting power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to not only draw nearer to you and become more like you, but I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a zeal and a desire to take the message of Christ's kingdom to the world, that they might hear that there is a way out of the darkness and the enslavement and the emptiness that is in that realm. Lord, thank you for the Lord's table where we can come and meet with you, and in a very real sense, feed upon your grace and receive strength. We look forward to your work in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.